I don't think you need to get a full-blown informaticist. I don't think you need a computer programmer for this. I think you need, you know, probably more, more importantly, somebody from maintenance who can find a way to get the iPad drilled into the wall or get you a stand or something. I'm Siva Yarlagadda, and I'm an internist at the Houston VA. I'm Jay Jennings, and my background is in public health with an emphasis on quality improvement. We wanted to bring you a real-time podcast on telehealth implementation. This podcast is sponsored by the VA Quality Scholars and the Baylor Institute for Quality Improvement and Patient Safety. On this episode of Innovation in the Time of COVID-19, we're going to be talking to Dr. Mike Ward and Dr. Rob Turr, who are with Vanderbilt and the Tennessee Valley VA Health System. They're going to be talking about how to integrate telemedicine into an emergency medicine visit. We're going to go ahead and let them introduce themselves. Sure. My name is Rob Turr. I'm an emergency physician at Vanderbilt and at the Tennessee Valley uh, VA Hospital. Um, I'm a clinical informatics fellow uh, supervised by Dr. Ward. Uh, And I'm Mike Ward. I'm an emergency physician at uh, Tennessee Valley VA as well here in Nashville and also at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I think we're all really familiar with the term telemedicine when it comes to outpatient telehealth. I think we're not really used to the term being used in emergency medicine until the until now when it's really being used in COVID-19. So what exactly constitutes emergency medicine telehealth? Emergency telemedicine and emergency telehealth is not one thing. It's a variety of services and a package of services. The I think most unique feature of, of the current situation is the possibility of the emergency provider themselves as a telehealth provider. And while that's also existed in the past and there have been political and uh, legal-based precedents for that happening in the past, it's mostly in frontier regions and critical access hospitals where uh, CMS and Health and Human Services has made exceptions to facilitate existing uh, emergency screening and emergency care via remote providers as long as they were within a certain distance. But in the current setting within more centralized regions of the country, within more urban areas, this is unprecedented. Also, you can look at some of the other regulations around um, having a state license. Tennessee is a great example where if you were a Kentucky-boarded physician, you could not operate in Tennessee those regulations were just waived within the past week. And so now, for example, Kentucky-based physicians could provide telehealth to Tennessee. I think a lot of times, though, we think of telehealth as what you and I are doing right now, uh, video conferencing, when in reality, there's much more than that. Another question we had was around billing and reimbursement. The new CMS guidelines for inpatient telehealth are saying that emergency medicine visits level one through five can be reimbursed. What does that mean? So until March uh, 30th of this year, one of the downsides of all of the rapid moving policy coming out of CMS and HHS mostly excluded emergency care. So the waivers from HHS allowing for extended and rapid credentialing and allowing for traditional outpatient codes to be used didn't include emergency medicine evaluation and management codes. So we were largely excluded from that process. As of March 30th, that has been revised to now include those codes. So as of now three days ago at the time of recording, um, we are for the first time able to actually bill for emergency telemedicine. So we were a bit different than I think other specialties. 
So what are the regulations around it? Are patients from small rural areas able to connect with larger hospitals hours away from them? I think there's two answers to that. There's the answer right now during the midst of the COVID pandemic, which serves as a platform to try these platforms and see what might work and what doesn't work and use that to inform future development at scale. I think we are at a unique political time in the sense that in addition to these waivers that allow for credentialing and billing, we are also in a unique circumstance where uh, the HIPAA regulations around the tools themselves and the HIPAA certification of the tools themselves has been uniquely lifted. And in that setting, I think formalizing too much and the delays that come with that may wind up uh, impeding the ability of us to get this out. So I would say there are two answers to that. But right now, I think using what providers and patients are already familiar with, being mindful of the fact that you should use tools with end-to-end encryption and you should respect local uh, IT policy in terms of network security and things like that. We're not saying, you know, do whatever you want, totally unsecured line. You should still make a good faith effort as described in those uh, notifications of enforcement by HHS. But I think it's really empowered us to be open-minded and creative. We use Epic at our site and I was on the phone with one of their tech services people and at some of their sites, it sounds like, especially in New York, they're using Microsoft Teams to do a lot of this stuff had that installed. And so uh, for a VA audience, Skype for Business or, or Microsoft Teams might be a good option because it's already available. If a lot of the providers already have Android or Apple phones or tablets, you could use those in the associated devices. So in terms of device or platform, the beauty uh, and the silver lining, I would say, with what's otherwise a very scary time is that it's allowing us to innovate and allowing us to move pretty quickly. So we've talked about this concept of infrastructure. So how do you build the infrastructure around waiting rooms, triaging? Can you go into that a little bit? I think there's two approaches to this. Um, there is the true tele-emergency medicine like we were talking about before. Um, and then there's the insight, what we're defining as electronic personal protective equipment. And those are two totally different situations. I think the second is probably the place where during the COVID pandemic, we should be focusing our efforts. Most hospitals have already made pretty great strides to get the worried well to screening sites and in communication with their PCPs from a telehealth standpoint. And because we haven't had time to appropriately validate true tele-emergency medicine, and the literature on it's pretty scarce. It's not zero, but it, it's pretty scarce. So with that in mind, I don't know that I would immediately advocate for people to use that for a full tele-EM visit, although some of the changes from uh, CMS in terms of the way the Emergency Medical uh, Treatment and Labor Act, which we can get into in a minute, are enforced, actually do support remote uh, tele-emergency medicine. Um, I think we would advocate first to try something like an electronic personal protective equipment or EPPE. Idea being some patients either are sick or are still gonna make it through the implemented filters to keep people away from the hospital and will wind up at the emergency department. Within that context, there are still opportunities to use these technologies to protect providers and patients from exposing one another to virus while still getting the benefits out of the emergency department, which is ultimately that if somebody is sicker than they appear, or they're sicker than they look on their triage note, 
you can convert into full-on emergency mode and resuscitate and evaluate and do everything you would normally do. But if it turns out that the patient's really well appearing, then you don't need to do that. You can conserve your PPE and keep your providers safe. Who do you need on your team to build this infrastructure? Do you need an informaticist or can, do you need IT involved? I think within the limits of that good faith effort to honor HIPAA and honor the fact that we do need to strive to protect our patients' data and our patients' privacy while also trying to be effective during the pandemic. You know, my, my instinct is that you do need to engage with your local health IT team to implement something like this. Um, but I think using these policy changes and using some of this literature to support the fact that this is a viable option, which may allow people to fast track this, um, but I think in terms of, I don't think you need to get a full-blown informaticist. I don't think you need a computer programmer for this. I think you need, you know, probably more, more importantly, somebody from maintenance who can find a way to get the iPad drilled into the wall or get you a stand or something. Those are the logistical things that I'm struggling with. And um, Mike has done a lot of work with implementing some of these tools for telemental health at the VA. And there, there may be some useful tips from that uh, if you want to speak about that. Yeah, so I agree with Rob in terms of basically building a multidisciplinary team. The key question here is who are the stakeholders? Um, because, you know, we could try to answer that from the standpoint of telestroke or telemental health, but the answer is it depends. Um, so you have anywhere from simply the equipment um, and who your vendors are, which right now is an issue. Um, because so many people are buying uh, the equipment to be able to ramp this up that we're seeing capacity issues, uh, or rather supply issues, um, just as we've seen with uh, so many other problems, whether it's from Tylenol up through nasal swabs, to be able to even swab someone for COVID. One, you've got to be able to source the equipment. Um, two, you've got to be able to install it and or have a way uh, that coincides with the process. So if you're doing a mobile triage, what are you going to have a stand or are you going to install this on the wall um, so that you can perform updates with your patients? Then you've got to have the team that you're working with. So is this solely emergency care or are there specialists involved? Because they may have unique needs. For example, with stroke, they may want someone in the room um, to be able to help perform part of the exam. With uh, telemental health, we found that uh, this is fairly independent, but we got to kind of know uh, when the exam is over. You've also got to have someone who's part of that team, and hopefully you have some individuals who can serve in dual roles, but people who understand process, um, because when it comes down to it, you can implement something, but if it doesn't incorporate into the remainder of your process, it's going to break down very quickly. Um, the nurses won't know what to do. The emergency physicians won't know what to do. Typically, uh, one of the emergency department uh, administrative leaders or clinical leaders uh, would be someone that can usually double in that role. But you've also got to think about, well, how are we going to clean these things? I mean, COVID is a fairly nasty and, and sticky um, illness that uh, if you look at a number of the papers that have come out, the droplets can contaminate a room fairly easily. So you've got to be able to also uh, decontaminate and clean these. So you've got to also think about, you know, what's your cleaning protocol for this as well, which is something that's kind of an afterthought. So the point here is, is that it's not one person. Like anything in any team, you've got to have multiple perspectives because if you don't, you're probably going to miss something.
I've been talking to other people about this. Say you don't have an iPad. Say you don't have a webcam. What basic supplies do you actually need to do emergency medicine telehealth? Within the hospital. Sure. So our uh, GME has actually been doing a lot of work trying to get this established. And I think that's the model that we, we plan to follow now that the legal environment is set up where we can actually do this in the ED. You know, there are a number of... So I guess the first thing is if there are existing supplies, using those first. Um, and again, kind of sticking with, uh, if you can MacGyver something, for lack of a better way to say it, we are currently in an austere environment. We're no longer in our normal world. So whatever you have and whatever you can deploy quickly, I would start with that. We have a number of iPads that exist for clinical studies and things like that, many of which have been put on hold, at least at Vanderbilt. At the VA, we have existing technical infrastructure that we use for the telepsychiatry. And so, you know, our goal would just be to scale that up. It really depends. You know, we already have uh, an area in our department where, where emergency physicians are screening low risk patients, but with high concern for COVID to avoid contaminating the rest of the department. It would be fairly straightforward to add a webcam to that and then use either a Microsoft tablet and Skype for Business and Microsoft Teams, which is already, again, on our network, on our infrastructure, already secure because it already exists. I could also see a situation, and this is part of what we're hoping to test in the next couple of weeks, a situation where essentially if the patient has an iPhone and the physician has an iPhone, you just use your phones and the nurse grabs the number and you, you use some amount of good faith that the patient will respect your privacy. Uh, there are ways around that, certainly using, um, you could use a different iCloud account or you could use a different Google account if you're using an Android phone. And those are some of the issues that we're, we're trying to work through. I think the, the key here is that there's a lot of infrastructure already in place. The question is, is how robust that's going to be. How well is it going to hold up in the event that your Wi-Fi signal is not working and you need to go to a backup in cellular um, you know, are you using using individuals' plans as opposed to the hospital-based account um, and what the security is of those? The nice part about it being in an austere environment is that the uh, restrictions around this are much less. As we eventually come out of the pandemic, which we will, then we'll start to see those slowly uh, reemerge. But the nice part, if there's a positive to this, is it's pushed everybody outside of their comfort zone and aligned, if you're familiar with the Swiss cheese model, which is how you identify or how safety events occur, that's sort of a negative. But on the positive, if we think about all the events aligning well for telehealth, this is like the Swiss cheese model for telehealth. Everything is aligning in its favor. Then as we emerge from the pandemic, then we'll start to have restrictions back in place. But now you'll have an entire generation of physicians who are experienced and much more comfortable. And I've heard over and over again, that wasn't so bad. Why aren't we doing this more often? Sure. Another quick question, especially around resident supervision. I know there's been some new things coming from ACGME. Can you guys speak to that a little bit? I'm not super familiar. Um, we have had communications from our GME and through some of our health IT groups about how to handle this. Within that context, this has been mostly inpatient and outpatient telehealth. So this isn't something that we've really planned on doing in the emergency department. Um, but within that context, there are workflows within 
many of the commercial EHRs. So there, there are ways within Epic to do this and, and we're using those workflows to kind of document a resident based exam and you can have the faculty member on the line watching it at the same time. Zoom like we're using here, which is the other package that we're using at our site uh, allows for this, you know, Skype for business allows for this. So you just have to get creative. And again, the, the government has set up an environment that actually I do think allows us to pretty rapidly innovate in this regard. The one thing that I would throw out there that's keeping me up at night is how do we study this while we're doing it now rapidly so that it doesn't wind up being not only hasty now, but so that we can harness that information in the future to make these more robust solutions after the fact. Um, and I think just making sure that we think about how to study this, how in a normal environment would you supervise a resident encounter? Would you record it and have them view it? Is just simply review of the documentation adequate and then the, the faculty member can call the patient again if there's a concern like they would with some services where everybody rounds briefly and then the attendant comes back later. I, I think those issues remain unsolved, but if there was ever a time to study it, it's right now. Well, and I, I think Rob brings up a great point, too, because what do you do currently? Do you go in on every single um, encounter with the patient? No. Um, you know, the resident will go in, they'll see the patient, you'll discuss the patient, then you'll go in and see them yourselves. That's entirely conducive um, in telehealth. You could have the patient wait for a minute as you discuss um, the case or even discuss it together and go from there. And so... Um, you know, that's also part of the role of the supervisor or the mentor in this particular case to listen to the story, to understand what doesn't make sense, what does, what's your track record with a particular uh, resident. You know, I think it's just a different form of supervision, but one that can absolutely occur. And perhaps, you know, even the idea of being able to hop into the call, that might be more conducive than, um, say, our current environment. So as two physicians that are kind of practicing through this pandemic, are you guys seeing any processes or policies that are working really well, that are being implemented really well, and are getting positive feedback? I'll talk about one uh, that's already been implemented and then one that will be implemented. Um, so uh, the first is our telemental health. Um, we went from um, an environment in which we were piloting this. It was successful. Everyone liked it. It was just an extra step. As COVID came along, suddenly the motivation of uh, the mental health officers to now interview through the iPad skyrocketed. And so what was a minor inconvenience before became highly motivating. And so we went from a setting in which we had difficulty implementing the telehealth to one in which it became the default operation. So we've got to keep in mind from a process standpoint that defaults are really important. Uh, we saw a recent study about the default opioid dosing and how when you change that, you can dramatically change not only what individual physicians are prescribing, but also across the entire system. So in this case for telemental health, when the default became electronic, as opposed to in person, you now force people outside of their comfort zone to get more comfortable with it um, and are using it on a much larger scale and our use of telemental health has skyrocketed. So the second example is now in mobile triage. So this is a great example of the EPPE or electronic personal protective equipment that Rob just alluded to. 
as we're having patients now that come in with undifferentiated symptoms, it might be a leg pain, but we're also still having those patients say, oh, and by the way, I have a cough. And it turns out that they are highly suspicious for COVID. And maybe they got brought back to a room realizing um, only after they've been brought back to the room and maybe even contaminating the entire emergency department that they were suspicious for COVID uh, when we could have identified that up front. Or because we don't know when someone uh, may have an unusual presentation or may even be asymptomatic as we're finding more and more, that we can just keep our providers safe and hence uh, use EPPE. So, we're going to move to a mobile triage model in which we're triaging patients outside and um, do this by telehealth. Uh, and in that way, as we're identifying either patients that need more care or maybe even don't even need to come in, we can then put them on the appropriate track for emergency care. Can you elaborate a little bit on how triaging through telehealth actually works? Um, we can do it much like our in-person evaluation. We can get the history, we can talk to them, we can look at them. And especially with COVID, one of the big issues is what's the work of breathing. So our plan, because we have not implemented this yet, this is this is still in the planning stages though, uh, it's moving fairly rapidly and can still be done by traditional telehealth anyway, is that we're gonna use the iPad and then um, get oxygen saturation as well as their heart rate that the patient can apply themselves, and then we can look at their work of breathing. I don't really care what their blood pressure is because I can talk to them about whether or not they're symptomatic, and then their temperature doesn't really matter to me. Someone can have a temperature or not. It doesn't really change my management. Um, I'm asking about their symptoms. I'm looking at them, and I can get a pretty good sense of how sick they are and whether or not they need to come in. If they have a temperature, they can also tell me if they've had a temperature. That's not perfect but I can get pretty darn close to um, what I would traditionally do in triage, yet I'm seeing the patient earlier and I'm able to make the decision as to what happens to them. And we take out that massive step. And if I can get 80 or 90% of the way there and I'm keeping myself and my colleagues safe, that's worth it. One last question around facilitation. You have all these consultants coming into the ER how do you really train them in these new processes? Well, the nice part is, is I don't think there's anyone that's not familiar with Skype, FaceTime, or some other application at this point. It's pretty easy to be able to get them up to speed. We're using FaceTime. That's such a simple application to use. Um, we found that the learning curve is actually pretty low. There are training modules, but we found that they're not that useful because everyone kind of intuitively understands it. And once you force everyone to start doing more video conferencing anyway, the amount of learning for those who maybe weren't comfortable with it are now more so. The issue more around any sort of learning is what's the process. And that comes with just jumping in. That's the beauty of emergency medicine. Uh, you jump in and you do it. You know, the hard one's the first one. The second one's easier, the third one's way easier, and by that point, you have group learning. We rely on our nurses. You know, the, the beauty of the emergency department is how collegial everything is. Once you've got those first few out of the way, there's someone that knows how it works. And chances are, once you've just launched the, the service in the first place, the people who have conceived it 
and are troubleshooting it are right there with you. I think we're just going to kind of end on this note. Do you guys have any lessons learned or tips that you have for people who want to start doing emergency medicine telehealth? I guess I would just say that during what's otherwise a, a frightening time, there are things that we can do beyond asking for PPE rapidly and effectively to protect our team and protect our patients without sacrificing the quality of care. So this we can do this. We can do this across the whole country. And I really encourage folks to get creative about how can I implement this this week and get this out there. And I'll add that through adversity comes opportunity. This is telehealth's opportunity. Society is permanently altered by everything that we're experiencing right now. We will never go back to what it was beforehand, just as we didn't with 9-11. We will realize from this how much more accepting of telehealth we are, Um, not only on the provider side, not only on the patient side, but also on the administrative side. And that's why um, healthcare will forever be changed in a good way. We'll learn there'll be a lot of lessons learned from this. The key is flexibility, thinking through the problems, what are the potential unintended consequences, um, and how do we make the system more robust as we move through? Part of the, the fun part about diving in is we've got an opportunity like none other. We'll learn, we'll all learn and we'll share those lessons and we'll move forward. For more information, please contact VACS at VA.gov. That's V-A-Q-S at VA.gov. The opinions expressed in this podcast are the author's own and do not reflect the views of Baylor College of Medicine, the Department of Veteran Affairs, or the United States government.